Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. And we are beginning this morning a section of Scripture that uh, many of you have asked me about. When are we going to get to Matthew 24? And I said, as soon as we finish Matthew 23. I give the kind of answer like the Lord does, right? No man knows the time or the day except the Father. Well, we're here. We have arrived at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is formally known as the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. Matthew's gospel contains a number of what are called discourses. They're they're extended times of Jesus' teachings. For example, the Sermon on the Mount is a discourse. This is the teaching, the extended teaching that Jesus did while on the side of the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. Now, this uh, I've been really um, looking forward to this, getting to this section of Scripture, and I have been dreading arriving at this section of Scripture all at the same time. I have been looking forward to it because it is so rich and uh, so uh, uh, impactful and profitable to our Christian life. I have been um, anxious about arriving at this passage of Scripture because it is going to be difficult to work through it and explain it uh, in a way that hopefully we can get a hold of. This section of Scripture presupposes a rather robust understanding of the Old Testament. And so the only way we're going to be able to go through this and to make heads nor tails out of it is for us to spend a lot of time moving back and forth into the Old Testament and back out of the Old Testament. Because Jesus, everything Jesus teaches here is, is lodged in the Old Testament. And he is bringing it forward. Now, how many of you have seen either in person or perhaps uh, on uh, YouTube or online or whatever... Uh, the works of these sidewalk artists. You ever seen some of these sidewalk paintings where they do? They're, they're typically three-dimensional, and they're, and they're really quite amazing. They're, you know, you're walking down the sidewalk, and then it looks like you're going to fall into a canyon, and, or there's somebody crawling out of a manhole or something, and they're all just done with chalk on a sidewalk. And they're really quite fascinating. But as they do them, they, the artist will, will sort of draw and, and color in different pieces in different places and sometimes out of order. And so if you're standing there watching it happen, you're scratching your head sometimes and thinking, okay, so I, I don't get it. Where, where does that go? What does that do? And, and over time, as the picture comes together, the details fit in place and, and, the, and the grand picture emerges. And you go, oh, okay, now I get it. Well, studying prophecy is, is sort of like that. Chronology, as you and I are most familiar with, is not a high biblical value. And so as we study prophecy, particularly as the Old Testament speaks to these things, oftentimes events that might be separated from by significant periods of time are compressed one next to each other, sometimes even placed out of order, thematically so. And so as we, as we look at the Olivet Discourse and, and all of the rest of the scriptures that we're going to be required to bring to bear here, you need to think of it like that big sidewalk painting. Is, uh, sometimes if you're not exactly sure how it fits in, hang on. 
If you have a question, write it down. Send me an email. I would be more than happy to uh, either address it back to you, give you an answer in writing, or if I'm planning to cover that in detail as part of a sermon, then I will just let you know when when I intend to do that. But I definitely want to try to answer all your questions. Having said that, I do not have all the answers. Far from it. So as we approach this section of Scripture, uh, we want to always have a a certain sense of humility about us, I think, that, uh, that, you know, we're not ironclad in every single aspect and every single detail. We do believe that we understand what's going on here. We We believe we understand what Jesus is teaching. We think we can account for the parts and pieces, uh, but, but clearly uh, it's possible that, that we could be in error in some of the particular areas. Not massive error that would throw the whole thing away, that would, that would necessitate the entire interpretation be, be jettisoned, but some of the possibilities, and as we work through, uh, you, will, you will no doubt, if you are at all interested in prophecy, you will no doubt come to sections where you will go, well, that's not how my favorite prophecy teacher, so-and-so, you know, says that it goes, and that's what it means. And I'll acknowledge that. Um, I don't, I'm not going to have time to point out, you know, where I differ from John MacArthur and, you know, and all the rest of them, but you have the MacArthur Study Bible, so you'll know. Okay? <laughs> and that's okay. That's okay. Uh, we just need to be true to the Word of God as, as best we understand it uh, and, and be humble enough before the Lord to admit that, you know, this might not be right, but this is how it seems. Okay? So that's going to be the approach. Now, we're looking here at the Olivet Discourse. And what I want to look at with you this morning is, the, is it in its entirety. I want to overview it. In fact, I'm going to read it to you. It's probably been a while since you have read it in one sitting. So what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read Matthew chapters 24 and 25 to you. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to quickly overview what we've just read and lay out the, what I believe are the major skeleton, the, you know, the, the, the structure upon which it hangs. And then we'll, of course, come back and look at all the pieces and parts as we go. Now, as I've said, our, our study here, not this morning, but, but certainly going forward, our study is going to draw... Uh, deeply from the well of the Old Testament, we are going to be looking at the book of Daniel. And we're not going to look at it just once or twice. We're going to be in the book of Daniel a number of times. So I could encourage you, if, if you have not read the book of Daniel lately, put it on your to-do list, and sometime in the next you know, few weeks or so, read the book of Daniel. It'll be just that much more helpful for you if you are familiar with the book of Daniel. So we're going to look at Daniel. We're also going to look at the book of Revelation. We're going to need to look at the book of Revelation together. We're going to look at Jeremiah. We are going to look at the prophet Zechariah. We're going to be looking at First and Second Thessalonians. And we're going to look at a multitude of other Old Testament and some New Testament books as well. Okay? So there's a lot of parts and pieces that we need to bring together. So let's begin, though, with a simple reading of the text. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. 
as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation. And will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation. Such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east, and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels and with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. 
Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is right near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, And the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the five who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. 
But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, then all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger And invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not care, take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, To the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal 
punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. May God bless the reading of his word. Beloved, I want to overview these two chapters with you this morning, and we're going to have to move quickly to do it. Starting first with the place and circumstances, the place and the circumstances of this Olivet Discourse. This is Jesus' longest prophetic teaching to be found in the New Testament. The book of Revelation is, of course, longer, but the book of Revelation was a vision given to John by Christ. These come directly from Christ during his earthly ministry. This is his longest. This is his most comprehensive teaching on the prophetic future. It is the, this passage, these two chapters, that lay the foundation for all further New Testament revelation with regard to the end times. Everything that comes after this, everything that the other disciples wrote, everything that Paul wrote, everything that John receives in the vision of Revelation and so forth, needs to accord with what Jesus has spoken here. Now, Jesus did not speak comprehensively. That is, that he did not cover every single detail. He laid down a framework. And it is the future writers who fill in the details as the progress of revelation happens. I mean, the New Testament was written over a a period of 40 years or more. And it's over this period that the details are continued to fill in. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but until John receives the vision of the revelation that is recorded, right, in the final book of the New Testament, there were details that nobody knew. Not Paul. Not Peter. Not even John himself. It is over time that that the additional pieces get filled in. And so so what Jesus is teaching them here lays the foundation, lays the structure, and then the additional revelation fill in all the colors and flesh it out. Furthermore, Jesus is writing to the Jewish people. We We will speak of this over and over again, but it's essential to understand what he is saying here is to is to recognize who he is writing to and why and what he is saying. He is speaking here of the future of the nation of Israel. The questions follow after his statement about the temple being destroyed, about the nation being laid desolate. They come to him and question him in verse 3. Actually, Mark tells us in Mark 13 that it's Peter and James and John and Andrew. Those four disciples come and ask these questions. Jesus answers their questions. So we need to understand the questions. We're not going to look at them this morning in any kind of serious detail. We need to understand the questions and then the answer to the questions. But it concerns the nation of Israel. Simple things um, to just sort of point out to you. This abomination of desolation, verse 15, spoken of in Daniel's prophecy, it concerns the temple of Israel and what happens in that temple. 
He talks about, uh, you know, you, you need to, to pray that, you, that you, when you flee the city, you don't flee on the Sabbath. That is a Jewish concept. That is not a Gentile concept. He speaks about a great tribulation in verse 21 with a reference to Jeremiah 30 in verse 7, the time of Jacob's trouble. He speaks in verse 24 of chapter 24 about false Christs and false prophets. That is, false messiahs and false prophets. False messiahs and false prophets do not trouble the church of Jesus Christ. We know who the Messiah is. We are not confused in any way, shape, or form as to who is the Messiah. Nor, if you read the New Testament closely, is the church concerned with false prophets. The church is concerned with false teachers. And we are repeatedly warned about false teachers. But false messiahs and false prophets are an issue for the people of Israel. Remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul says the Jews want signs. They want miracles, right? They want prophecies and miracles. It is the Gentiles who want wisdom, tightly argued cases. So this is, a, is addressed to the nation of Israel. Hang on to that. Hang on to that reality. The circumstances under which Jesus gives this teaching, of course, is the close of Tuesday afternoon of Passion Week, in which for two solid days he is, in, he is engaged in, in brutal hand-to-hand combat, as it were, verbal combat with the leadership of the nation of Israel. They have attempted in every single way possible to discredit him and to sweep him aside. They've already determined, according to John 11, that they're going to murder him. They are merely looking for an opportunity. They need to separate him from the crowds. They need to diminish his popularity. They need to either catch him in some sort of statement that could be considered seditious so that Rome will take care of him, or they need to catch him in a blasphemy so they can take care of him themselves. But they are attempting to destroy him, and he battles them and bests them in that open combat. At the end of Tuesday afternoon, he pronounces the series of woes contained in Matthew chapter 23. When he declares these woes upon the the scribes and the Pharisees, he is declaring the woe upon the religion of his people, the Pharisaical Judaism of the first century. And he is declaring it to be absolutely, totally, completely false and bankrupt, deadly, um, and that they are uh, fall in line with all who have preceded them, who have opposed the prophets of God. And he pronounces upon them in chapter 23 and verse 38, desolation. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Being left to you desolate. The house is the temple. The temple is the city. The city is the nation. So by pronouncing the desolation of the temple, he is sweeping up all that is important to them. And he is saying the entire nation will be destroyed and laid waste. The concept of desolation, you can pencil this in, check it on your own. You can go to Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 5 for the very same style language in which the prophet Jeremiah pronounces desolation on the temple and the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel prior to the conquest of the Babylonians. The beginning of verse 24, we looked at last week. He leaves the temple when he left. He is symbolically withdrawing the presence of God from among the people, just like the Shekinah glory left 
in Ezekiel chapters 9 through 11. He sits down on the Mount of Olives and he looks back west towards the city and the magnificent temple that Herod had built. And he says, not one stone will be left upon another. The entire temple will be dismantled. And his disciples come to him. And they want to ask him some questions. The reason they want to ask him questions is because of how they understand the end time events to play out. I'm not going to take you here this morning, but but we will go there. Mark it down. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Lay out a scheme for the nation of Israel in the last days. The disciples were very, very familiar with this prophecy. And essentially what it says is, in Zechariah 14, beginning in verse 1, it speaks first of the destruction of Jerusalem. And then it speaks from that of the Lord's um, intervention to destroy the enemies of Israel. Following that, it speaks of the establishment of his great millennial kingdom, the great kingdom of David. This was the end time scheme they had in their mind. So when Jesus pronounces desolation on the city and the temple, he talks about the temple being torn down. In their minds, what they see is Zechariah 14 beginning to play out. And so they want to know, when is this all going to happen? When is this all going to happen? And so they have some questions. That's the second part of our outline here. The disciples' questions in verse 3. Now, different Folks uh, see this differently. Uh, Some see it as two questions. Some see it as three. Grammatically, it's probably two, but the second question has two parts. So you effectively get to the same place, two or three questions. Here are the questions. Tell us when will these things happen? Question number one. You've just said it's all going to be destroyed. Tell us when. And what will be the sign of your coming? Literally, the end of the age. The sign of your coming, the end of the age. Probably one question linked together. What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of the end of the age? That's what they want to know. Zechariah has told them. Destruction of the city. Messiah uh, destroys the enemies of Israel. Establishes his kingdom, which is the age to come. The age to come. So that's what they want to know. What they don't foresee, because they couldn't foresee, was this period of time in which you and I live. We live in the white space, as it were, between this initial destruction of the temple and the return of Messiah to defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom. In Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul calls it the mystery, not previously known or foreseen by the ancients. What is the mystery? It's Jew and Gentile together on equal footing in one body called the church. And this is the age in which we live. Unforeseen in the Old Testament. It wasn't that Gentile salvation was unforeseen in the Old Testament. There are many Old Testament passages that speak about the Gentiles coming to faith in Messiah and actually flooding to Israel to worship the king. So it wasn't Gentile salvation that was unforeseen. What was unforeseen is that Gentiles and Jews were together on equal footing in one body called the church. 
Jesus does not address the church in this passage. It is not to be found. We are not here in this passage. There's no rapture of the church in this passage. This is about Israel. And as we unfold it together, I think I can make that claim, uh, plain for you. So the place and the circumstances, the disciples' questions, that takes us to Jesus' answer. A lengthy answer. A lengthy answer begins in chapter 24 and verse 4. And notice how he begins. See to it that no one, what? Misleads you. The fact that he would say that would indicate that one could be easily, what? Misled. Misled. So he he does not want them to be misled. He is going to lay some things out for them that are going to help them to know what's coming. Not specifically and precisely because he says at this point, right, no man knows the, the exact hour. But don't be misled. And beginning in verse Four and running all the way through uh, verse uh, 31 is his answer to their two or three questions. I'll develop this uh, next week, I think it is. But in reality, Matthew does not record the answer to the first question. The answer to the first question is recorded in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 12 or 21, beginning in verse 12, actually records Jesus' answer to the first question. So Matthew records only his answer to the second or second slash third question, however you want to look at it. That's what Matthew addresses or records. Jesus' answer, beginning in verse 4 and running through verse 28, cover what is known as the tribulation. The tribulation. Seven years of absolute horror upon this planet. Where God pours out his wrath. There were a series of of seals and trumpets and bowls. Verses 5 through 14 cover the first three and a half years of that tribulation time. And correspond with Revelation chapter 6 and the first six seals. We'll look at it again in detail when we get there. Beginning in verse 15, we enter what is known as the second half of the tribulation or the great tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. It begins at the midpoint of the tribulation when the abomination of desolation is set up by the Antichrist in the temple in Jerusalem. So from 15 to 28 covers the second half of the tribulation period. Then, beginning in verse 29, Jesus speaks about his return, his second coming. But immediately after the tribulation of those days. You see that in verse 29? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, there will be these cosmic Uh, signs in the sky, and then, verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear. So it's after the tribulation, verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man in his appearance. Look over to verse 31 of chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Beloved, after the tribulation, then Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, then he sits on his throne. Why do I take the time to point that out to you? Because it's simply this. We are not in the millennial kingdom. Jesus is not sitting on the throne of David. He is sitting at the hand of the right, fa- uh, the right hand of the Father on the throne of God. The kingdom's not here. We are not in the kingdom. If the kingdom were here, I want my money back. Because this is, this is not such a great place. And nowhere does it correspond to the, to the glories of the kingdom described by the prophets of old. We're not in the kingdom. Okay? We're not in the kingdom. Immediately after the tribulation, then he will come. When he comes, then he will establish his kingdom. Then he will sit on the throne of David. Following Jesus' answers, he starts a series of parables, beginning in verse 32. Parables of watchfulness. Parables of watchfulness. Now, here's an interesting observation, I would say. Prophecy is never given in the Bible to satisfy our curiosity about the future. Never. In fact, the Old Testament specifically prohibits and declares it to be an abomination to seek to try to contact the spirit world for the purpose of determining the future. Any and all attempts to read into the future outside from the word of God that has been given to us are an abomination before God. So, beloved, if you happen to have a Zodiac table, burn it. Burn it. Okay? Burn it. God tells us what he wants us to know. And when it comes to prophecy, it's not to satisfy idle curiosity. The purpose of prophecy is to purify the people of God. That is its purpose. It is to purify us both spiritually and and in terms of our our character, the outworking of our lives. That is why prophecy is given. It's interesting to me that uh, the scheme in which Jesus teaches. He begins his public ministry declaring to repent for the kingdom of heaven is what? It is at hand. It's 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 a message of repentance and faith. A declaration that you need to be made right with God. The kingdom is coming. It is, it, is, it is, in his case, at hand in the persons of the king himself. And you need to be ready for the entrance of that kingdom. And, and the way one becomes ready is, is by becoming spiritually ready. We enter a literal, physical kingdom through a spiritual door. That door is Christ. And so he preaches, and he teaches, and he exhorts, and he, and he implores the nation to prepare themselves for the kingdom. And it's only at the end that he begins then to talk about prophecy. 
And I think that's that's an instructive sort of preaching scheme. Preaching should begin with with messages about repentance and faith and coming to know the Savior. And then when one has come to know the Savior, then it's time for one to begin to be instructed about how to live as a child of God. And one of the most instructive uh, ways that the the New Testament speaks to us about how one is to live as a child of God is is in the context of prophetic teaching. It's about our character. It's about our, it's about our beliefs. For example, 1 John chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. John says, Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, and you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Walk in the light Because the end is coming. Or how about the messages to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3? At the end of each message, what does it say? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the what? Churches, plural. Each and every message was for each and every church, both then and for us now. Prophecy purifies, rightly used. And so Jesus here, beginning in verse 32 of chapter 24, begins to give what I call parables of watchfulness. Parables of watchfulness. Specifically, he has one on the fig tree, verse 32 to 51. Chapter 25, 1 to 13, the ten virgins. And then chapter 25, 14 to 30, the talents. So there are three basic parables here. These parables deal with the implications of the end of the age. And they're basically this. The parable of the fig tree is be alert. Be alert. Don't be sleepy. Pay attention. The parable of the ten virgins Be spiritually prepared when the king comes. Be spiritually prepared for when the king comes. The parable of the talents. Be involved in ministry. For when the king comes, he may find you doing the master's business. So be on the alert. Don't be sleepy-minded. Don't be dullards. Be spiritually ready for the return of your king and be busy about the king's work so that when he comes and finds you, you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. These are the parables of watchfulness. And as we get into them, even though the prophecy refers to the nation of Israel, we're not going to find the church here. It's not about the rapture of the church and and those kinds of things, it is still exceedingly instructive for us not to satisfy our curiosity, although it may do some of that, but that we might be called to be alert, to be spiritually prepared, and to be busy in the work of the Lord until he comes. And Jesus finishes with judgment. 25, beginning in verse 31 to 46, he speaks about Judgment. This is not the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. This is not the judgment 
of, uh, of um, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 3, the Bema Sheet judgment. This is a judgment that occurs on earth after the tribulation, prior to the establishment of the millennial kingdom, by which Jesus will judge the nations. Verse 32, chapter 25. All the nations, plural, that is all the Gentiles, will be gathered before him and he will separate them. He will put the sheep on his right, he will put the goats on his left. You are a sheep by virtue of the reality that you have invested your life in the ministry to the people of Israel in their time of greatest need, the tribulation. You are a goat if you have turned your back on the ancient people of God. And that is the basis by which Jesus will judge the Gentiles at the end of the tribulation and determine which Gentiles enter into the millennial kingdom and which ones go into eternal fire. So that's the scheme. That's how it's laid out. You probably got a million questions rolling through your minds. Write them down. Put a piece of paper in the margin of your Bible. Write it in the flyleaf. Do whatever you got to do. We'll do our best to answer them as we go. But that's the overall scheme of what he's teaching. Okay? May God use this message, these chapters, to inflame our hearts that we we would be redeeming the time until we see our Lord face to face. Let's pray. Father... We thank you for your word. We thank you that is true and sure. We thank you, as you have said through your prophets, that heaven and earth would pass away before one aspect of your word would go unfulfilled, not one jot or tittle. We have absolute confidence in the word of God. Father, we confess that in our limitations, that there are things that are quite mysterious to us that we can't necessarily account for every single detail, although we are to study to show ourselves approved, the workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth, as Paul says. So, Father, we want to do that. and We believe that you have certainly made your revelation plain enough to us that we can understand it in its, in its sweep, and we can understand it in its parts, and even if some of the details may be a little murky or subject to different interpretation, Father, the grand scheme is plain to be seen. If we will but humble our hearts, may you help us do that. I pray, Father, for those here this morning that perhaps they've wandered in for the very first time, or perhaps they've been here a while, and they're still checking it out. They have an awareness of Jesus, maybe even believe in Jesus in some sense as a historical figure, but, but they do not have a personal saving knowledge of Christ. More importantly, he has not a knowledge of them. And I ask your spirit to do something amazing even now. Open their eyes. May you bring them to a full awareness of their desperate condition and their need for the Savior. Draw them to yourself and save them, we pray. And for those who have placed their faith in Christ, our Father, may you use the messages here over the next weeks and months to deepen our trust and our hope in the risen Christ.
For it's in his name we pray, amen.